You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very esteemed guest, Dr. David O'Malley. So Dr. O'Malley is the director of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. And he is passionate about improving the care of women with gynecologic cancers through his research as well as as his everyday practice. So we have a lot to chat with him today on all things ovarian cancer and all about the recent advances that are happening in this space. So grab your favorite beverage. I have mine and let's connect over coffee with Dr. David O'Malley. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion and please share this video and this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom Dr. O'Malley is about to share with us today. So with that a huge welcome to you Dr. O'Malley to this episode of Connect Over Coffee an honor to have you with us. Oh the honor is all mine thank you so much and really looking forward to uh, this conversation uh, over coffee. Thank you. So, um, you know, many exciting advances happening in the space of ovarian cancer. So if we were to ask you about the three most exciting advances that has already happened so far in 2023, uh, what would you share with us and what should our overcomers know about the readiness of those treatments and uh, advances and uh, availability as options uh, for ovarian cancer? 2023 really uh, is going to be the year of antibody drug conjugates. Rituximab, its trade name is Ella here, is uh, just had a phase three trial uh, that we discussed uh, at ASCO this past year, showing the benefit of the antibody drug conjugate. So, what's an antibody drug conjugate? The the, the it's it's a drug that has an antibody that connects to an antigen or a marker on the cancer cells attached to that molecule is what we call the payload, which is released or is taken into the cancer cell, killing the cancer cell directly. So limiting off cancer cell or off target toxicities while providing the greatest dose of that drug to the cancer cell. So I refer to Mervtuximab as Merv because it's easier to say, and I try not to use trade names in, in my field. So this trial showed that Merv was better than the drugs that we have right now in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, and it helped people live longer. And in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, we have really never had a trial what is shown to help people live longer. We've had trials which showed that it kept the cancer away, it kept the cancer in check longer, but never one that translated to survival advantage. So the year, the next probably several years will be antibody drug conjugates, maybe more coming out this year. The other thing that we saw was uh, a first-line trial called duo This was an interesting trial because it incorporated 
Bevacivimab, trade name of that is Avastin, the antivascular therapy. Combine that to carboplatin paclitaxel, which is our first line therapy. And then all the other patients either received a PARP inhibitor, in this case, a Laparib, or an immune therapy called Derva. And what we found is this trial was positive, meaning it showed that by using all three of those classes of antivascular, PARP inhibitors, and immune therapy provided the greatest benefit. The problem is that the trial didn't have an, an arm that had the BEV plus the elaporib, so the antivascular therapy plus the PARP inhibitor. And so with that, the positive results are called into question because we have other trials that showed those two drugs together were pretty darn good in certain subpopulation of patients. So once again, the molecular basis of the of, of these trials using something called homologous combination deficiency testing or HRD testing, BRCA testing, it becomes so important for us to base our first therapies. One thing that's so important is we need to start talking about the chance of curing more patients utilizing our first-line therapy. I, I'm, I love that we keep the disease away longer, and that is a main outcome of so many of our trials. But really the goal, particularly when patients are first diagnosed, is can we cure more patients? So we need more time on duo to see if we cured more patients. We continue to await the results of multiple, multiple trials, what look like they're going to report out this year, many of them in the first-line setting, many of them testing this hypothesis, testing this question of immune therapy plus PARP inhibitor plus or minus antivascular therapy, different combinations of drugs, different things, three more trials probably two or two or even three of those we'll read out this year. And what else? Novel therapies for once patients recur, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, new novel therapy, antibody drug conjugates, electronic magnetic fields, tumor-treating fields. There's a very good chance we're going to see multiple trials read out in the in the patients uh, who, have, who have recurred, getting better therapies for them so they can live longer with better quality of life. I know that's a long answer, but three very important, very exciting areas here in 2023. That was a wonderful answer, very hopeful answer. Thank you. I'm going to go back to the word cure that you used in your um, when you were talking about the DOO trial, right? So um, in general, how do you define cure in ovarian cancer? Well, a lot of people stay away from the word cure. I don't. I embrace it because that's my goal, my goal for my patients. That's our patient's goal to get rid of the cancer. They never have to worry about it. They'll yeah. always have to worry about it. And when we are talking about advanced cancer, so no evidence of disease, complete clinical response. Those are other terms that we use. What do I mean by cure? I mean that the cancer stays away and doesn't come back. Do we define that at year five? Do we define that at year seven? Do we never define that? Do we say, no, we're never completely cured because that cancer could come back anytime? Well, I'm more hopeful than that. And I think really looking at if the cancer has not come back within five to seven years, the odds that it comes back after that point are extremely 
very, very low. Nothing zero, nothing zero, but very, very low. So in the frontline setting, meaning the first time we've treated patients with chemotherapy, for example, that cancer hasn't recurred in five, maybe seven years. I'm referring to those patients to cured. I know a lot of people don't like that term. I think we need to start using it more. And I think we need to really look at that as one of our main outcomes of clinical trials, particularly in the first line setting. Love that optimism. Thank you, Dr. Anneli. So um, moving on to my next question, there has been, I was reading some recent articles that were published between the link between, and this is not new, but there were like some recent, recent articles that I read um, establishing the link between obesity and ovarian cancer. So um, based on your research interest in obesity, tell us about how obesity might affect ovarian cancer progression and therapeutic responses to, to ovarian cancer. And what should our overcomers know about this? Well, epidemiological data is always a little bit challenging because you can't say causation. You can just see relationships. You can just say, well, that's chance. So granulosa cell, a very rare non-epithelial ovarian cancer has been clearly shown to be related to obesity. Seems like lower grade cancers, low grade serous ovarian cancer, for example, may be related uh, to obesity. Ovarian cancer in general may be, and the, we think that could be because the hormonal milieu, we don't completely understand. There's a lot of hypothesis behind why. When we look at the treatment paradigm, we don't differentiate if somebody's obese or not obese. We use the same therapies. Now, one thing we learned about 10 years ago, we we're probably under-treating women who are on the heavier side with the amount of chemotherapy we were giving. We were actually was capping the value of the chemo of certain chemotherapy agents. And we found, and there was a big initiative, as gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now, that we should really base it for most drugs, not all drugs, mm -hmm. the patient's actual weight, not an adjusted weight, not an adjusted weight. Okay. So um generally though, I mean so you you mentioned a very interesting point on the dosage based on the weight of the patient. Is this is this in standard practice now, or is this something that the research is needs to be more established before we uh, get to that level? Yeah. So I can't take I can't take every drug and say it has to be it should be based on the actual weight. There are certain drugs, mirtuximab, for example, which is an adjusted ideal body weight, and we've shown that that is clearly safer when we use that. We don't impact efficacy. Uh, we found norepinephrine patient who's really thin uh, should not have as much of the dose. Okay. Mm -hmm. So not this doesn't apply to every drug, but in general. In general, we should be basing most medications on the actual weight, not an adjuster, or not a calculated. So that isn't, to answer your question, that is in clinical practice. And there was a big initiative actually put out by our colleagues in the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, uh, which really taught us all that. And we looked back in our research at that time called the GOG, uh, uh, Gynecological Oncology Group, now called the GOG, I should say, uh, that is, uh, has uh, substantiated that. And that is now clinical, now common in clinical practice. Okay. 
Thank you. So um, a lot has happened with PARP's uh, evolution in recent times with the new limitations, regulations coming in, et cetera. And you talked about ADCs at the onset, right? So uh, there is a, you know, there's a little bit of confusion. Let's not, confusion is probably not the word, a little bit of clarification needed uh, on our end to understand clearly the differences between uh, for uh, the ADCs and also chemotherapy and how do you, when it comes to treatment of ovarian cancer, how do you determine the best candidates for each kind of therapy? Well, we are in a era of personalized medicine. And so personalized medicine comes with the, understand the molecular makeup of the tumor of the patient. Okay, so everybody should have germline bracket testing. Everybody should have somatic tumor testing of the BRCA. Probably should argue that everybody should have HRD testing. Those are first decisions to be made. And now we're in this new era where we have to identify other markers, which gives us an option. What are those other markers? High folate receptor alpha expression, right? Maybe nappy 2 b this other drug which is being developed, maybe HER2-new in ovarian cancer. So there's more drugs which are targeting many of these antibody-drug conjugates, which are targeting these antigens, these receptors on the cancer cells. So it's in transition. Antibody-drug conjugates, much different than PARP inhibitors, much different, somewhat different than standard chemotherapy. I argue they're all chemotherapies. Some of them are smarter than others, but they're all chemotherapies. If you're talking to a patient taking a PARP inhibitor, they will say, I'm taking a chemotherapy drug every day, uh, and we have to manage the symptoms as such. So I would say they're all chemotherapies. We have this traditional chemo versus the molecular basis of PARP inhibitors versus antivascular therapy, uh, BEV versus antibody-drug conjugates, MERV. And then we have the immune therapies, which... The, the, the initial immune therapies results have been disappointing, but the next generation of immune therapies seem to be very exciting. And finally, we may make some breakthroughs in the treatment of ovarian cancer with immune therapy. So uh, when you when you speak about immune, immunotherapy, I know that, uh, like you said, it has not been really promising in the, at the onset, at least, uh, for ovarian cancer. But now um, I'm hearing that in they're being in trials with as combination therapies with other kinds of agents, so which is probably proving to be a lot more um, hopeful and promising for our overcomers, right? And so, uh, but um, can you tell us a little more about, just a little more about immunotherapy in terms of um, is it is it correct that e even now it's being used only in the setting of clinical trials and not as a standard practice, or is that different now? It should really only be used as part of uh, clinical trials. There are some exceptions to that. There are some exceptions to that. Okay, one of those exceptions, if there that we should be testing. Um, some rare type of ovarian cancer, mucinous endometrioid in clear cell for mismatch repair proteins or MSI high. The other term and the other indication is tumor mutational uh, load or, or TMB. Okay. And that's the count. All right. And those subsets of patients 
have a moderate chance of having these mutations within them, which would put them in a much higher chance of responding to immune therapy. And actually the indication is if you have one of those, that you do have the option of, of immune therapy. And that though there's very little data in ovarian cancer, because so few of patients have those abnormalities in their tumor, but I can tell you, I've treated a number of patients and the response rates are excellent um, when you have those changes to the tumor. If you don't have those changes to the tumor, which most do not, outside of clinical trial, I cannot in, in, uh, justify the risk because of the limited benefit at the current time. But the next generation, as you alluded to, the next generation combining and then the next generation of of medications of targets are 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 smarter where they're not just removing the blockers that the cancer cells have set up to the immune system but they're connecting the immune cells to the cancer to the cancer allowing them to do them being the immune cells to do their job better thank you so um we, you briefly touched upon this, but just, you know, in trying to help us understand why does platinum resistance develop in uh, in our overcomers and what are the new drugs on the pipeline and on the horizon? I know you talked about a few, but in general, I mean, just summarizing everything, uh, especially for platinum sensitive overcomers, which I understand is the majority of our patient community. So what's happening there and why is this platinum resistance event developing? What is happening? Well, first, let's say, going back to my earlier comment, if the cancer doesn't come back, you're not going to become platinum resistant, right? Mm. Now, traditionally, historically, we've said that 80, even 85% of women will recur with ovarian cancer. I do not believe that's true anymore, and especially in particular subtypes, BRCA, BRCA, as well as HRD positive. Those numbers seem to be much, much uh, smaller in the in those that recur. But if patients recur, the majority of them will recur beyond six months of platinum sensitivity, uh, beyond completing therapy beyond six months, excuse me, that makes them platinum sensitive. Once somebody recurs, they're almost certainly, they're almost certainly to be ultimately become platinum resistant outside maybe a miracle. So I'm going to start with platinum sensitive because there's really exciting time right now. We really look at platinum sensitive patients as um, not only to re return to platinum doublets. Okay. And there's one of three doublets that we will use. So it's platinum plus something. That's what I mean by doublet. And then in addition, we make a decision. Are we going to utilize BEV, the uh, Avastin again, uh, or for the first time? Or are we going to use PARP inhibitors? Unfortunately, there's been some changes in the approvals by the FDA and PARP inhibitors, and they've really narrowed uh, what is officially approved. And those are for mostly BRCA uh, patients. Um, still, Alapra, which was one of the medications, still has an indication, and, and, and I hope that would continue in the future. So if somebody didn't have PARP inhibitor in the first-line setting, if they get a 
complete response in the in the platinum sensitive if they normalize their ca125 if if um, if they have BRCA, hands down, they should have gotten the first line. I, I don't even like to talk about PARP inhibitors in, in, in BRCA patients or BRCA tumors uh, be, uh, in the platinum sensitive because they should have gotten the first line. There's really no excuse, okay? But if some reason they weren't tested or the testing changed, I don't know, but then they definitely. But the clinical features in the platinum sensitive predicting response to PARP inhibitors are probably more important than the molecular changes outside of BRCA and BRCA1 and 2 in another group of patients called RAD uh, in tumors and not patients, excuse me, sorry about that, RAD51 C and D. Okay. Outside of that, the clinical features complete response to platinum, normalization of C125 are probably the best predictors. And I just wrote a paper on that um, that shows that we should continue. Now, what comes into question is how long to continue to PARP. All the trials continue to PARP until progression or toxicity or problems with toxicity. But we found out by looking at those patients had treatment more than two years, that the rate of AML and MDS called myelodysplastic syndrome was higher than we wanted. It was about 11% in those patients. And so I really started having the conversations with my patients. Should I limit therapy to two or three years? We don't have data on that, but it seemed like those patients who were on longer had a higher chance of MDS or AML. So treatment paradigm, for me, almost every patient gets uh, the, you know, every patients get carboplatin paclitaxel and almost every one of my patients get BEV. And then they're, if they're HRD positive, I add a PARP to it. If they then recur in the platinum sensitive space and they weren't HRD test positive, if they get a really good response and then I introduce PARP, though there's some limitation with regards to the regulatory approval, uh, it is still NCCN guideline listed and usually we can get the insurance companies to pay for it. Now, in platinum-resistant disease, um, the main opportunity here is antibody drug conjugates. But again, we have the next generation of immune therapies. We have something called tumor-treating fields, which are these uh, magnetic uh, electric arrays that are worn by patients. Um, uh, that's, that's exciting coming out. Uh, a number of antibody drug conjugates, uh, new therapies, which are directed at the machinery are very uh, interesting that th those are potentially a possibility, uh, but antibody drug conjugates, antibody drug conjugates, antibody drug conjugates, that's really where we're looking at. Um, and, and we're gonna start seeing much smarter drugs directed at molecular changes. So there'll be more, they'll be more rare but that comes down to our previous conversation. We have to test, test those tumors, figure out that the machinery, there's something that machinery that we can target then find a drug to target, kill those darn cancer cells. Thank you. Um, so this, this brings me to um, the next question, which is interesting because it's kind of uh, related. Well, um, I was going to talk to you about clinical trials, right? And because all these new and novel therapies mean that there has to be some research ongoing and uh, which brings me to the point of clinical trials. So according, and, and I know that you are very invested and you do your own clinical trials as well. So tell us uh, for our overcomers and for all of us, um, why are clinical trials in a, important in ovarian cancer and um, 
what are the trials and that you are you may be running or are involved in and why should why should we make these trials and the knowledge of it more accessible to our overcomers oh uh, you have an hour because this is my passion uh let's start with the altruism because we don't talk about that enough i tell my patients all the time participant in a clinical trial my hope is it will benefit you but one thing that which is missed is that by participating in the clinical trial, not only could it benefit the patient who's being treated, it could benefit generations of patients after them. Think about that. Benefiting generations of patients after them. The altruism we need to think about more in participation in clinical trials. How about the ethical responsibility to making sure we're offering clinical trials to all of our patients? In ovarian cancer, all this excitement, I mean, you can tell I'm fired up, right? Yeah. All this excitement, we basically have five drugs. Five drugs. Okay? Carbo, Taxol, Pagli, Leposome, Doxorubicin, Tobotecan, Gemzar, and now Merv. So we have a six. Gemzar is not even approved except with platinum, but we still use it. So it's really five or six. There's some other things we can use that are listed on, the, on guideline therapy but it's really five drugs. So I tell my patients all the time, I only have so many tricks up my sleeve. Five, five or six. This is what I do every day, but I have to combine some of those. So it really gets down to three or four tricks up my sleeve because some of those are utilized to, in combination. But by participating in clinical trials, by giving our patients a better chance to responding to something new, I can add one, two, three more tricks up my sleeve. Options for our patients. Living longer, better quality of life. I'm going to answer a question before you ask it. Clinical trials, tomorrow's therapies today. And what a, and my goal, all of our goals should be, we may not cure, use that word again, everybody with ovarian cancer, we're not curing patients with high blood pressure. We're not curing patients with diabetes for the most part. Weight loss stuff maybe, okay? We're not curing patients with high cholesterol. Again, some exceptions. I'm not comparing the people listening to this to hypertension, diabetes, completely different. Please don't think I'm comparing because there's no way that that's a comparison. But if a patient with diabetes doesn't take their hypoglycemics, doesn't take their insulin, that diabetes is going to kill them. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, it's ultimately going to kill them. My goal, and I think all of our goals should be to find medications that are well tolerated, that we can conveniently take, that control the cancer so we can live a normal lifespan with the best quality of life. We may not get rid of it, it being the ovarian cancer, but if we can control it so the best quality of life that obviously is a win. Where it becomes a chronic disease, just like hypertension or diabetes, where you just kind of control it, manage it with medication, lifestyle changes, et cetera, but it doesn't come in the way of you being a full, living a full, active, engaged, fulfilling life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree absolutely. with 200% on that. So um, 
you know, in certain cases, uh, we have been asked by our overcomers that, um, you know, uh, surgery has not been recommended for a specific patient for whatever reason. Um, and then the same question is for genetic testing, because we, through our overcare program that we have, we speak with our overcomers about genetic testing. And so sometimes it comes to our attention that um, they have specifically asked their care providers about genetic testing, but they were told that with the type of ovarian cancer they have, genetic testing is not necessary. Now, we know also that uh, the NCCN guidelines say that 100% of ovarian patients should get genetic testing. Can you help us, uh, you know, filter this a little bit more? Why in certain cases, number one, surgery is not recommended for patients, and number two, genetic testing is also not re recommended by the providers? Well, let's start with the easier one first, and that's genetic testing. Let's just keep it simple. Everybody with ovarian cancer gets genetic testing. Let's just keep it simple. Okay. If you say, well, a low grade serous ovarian cancer, you don't really need it. Um, low grade endometrium, you don't really need it. Maybe that's true. And there are probably some people that uh, some patients who are diagnosed with certain types of ovarian cancer, that the, the odds of them having a genetic predisposition are so low, it doesn't warrant genetic testing. But let our patients make that decision in counseling. I've said, let's keep it simple, right? Life is too complicated as it is. Everybody with ovarian cancer should get genetic testing. Now, some people, practitioners, and I don't think this is completely wrong, but I do disagree, will say, I'm going to test the tissue, the tumor. And if the tumor didn't show any abnormalities, then the odds that they have a genetic disposition is quite low. I disagree with that in two ways. One of which is the, the, the test that we do on the tissue does miss certain mutations. They're called point mutations or long deletions. There's certain things in the tumor that will not be picked up in the current technology that we could be missing. And it's such an important test. Even if we're only missing 1% of people, we still should have it because they absolutely should get a PARP inhibitor. Okay. So what's the other thing? Every time I've sat down with a patient uh, and I've said, you have a, a, a BRCA mutation in your tumor, the first question they ask, if they know what a BRCA mutation is, first question they ask, is my family at risk? Could I pass this on to my children? And if I don't have that germline test there, I I have to say, well, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to see if that's a possibility and then go from there. So having those results, being able to have that conversation is 100% another reason, another reason why I want to have both of those together. So the missing, missing certain deletions, okay, and having those results so I can counsel my patients. Are there certain subsets? There may be that the risk of genetic predisposition is so low, but one of the things we're finding out, even endometrial cancer, is that the 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 occurrence of genetic predispositions contributing to ovarian endometrial cancer is higher than we originally thought, and for that reason, I recommend testing of everybody. Great, um, and so the same same question for um, surgeries. So why is it not recommended? Uh -huh. Certain situations. Surgery is a harder question. You know, in an ideal world, 
surgery would be offered to everybody. Probably the number one sur reason surgery is not offered to patients is because they have other health conditions, which exclude them from it. Um, and that's the number one reason. And the other, there are other reasons. For example, if we don't think that we can get all the cancer out, we actually think that surgery could be even harmful. Um, so if somebody has disease, which is not resectable, if they have disease in their chest, uh, which is not resectable, sometimes it can be disease in their liver. Um, but, you know, I think with the current technologies and using multidisciplinary approach, thoracic surgery, our surgical oncology colleagues who, who operate on the liver, you know, many of these options are still available to our patients. So there are patients that I don't recommend surgery to usually for the number one reason that they're, they're just, I don't think they're going to live through the surgery or the recovery phase because of their other health conditions. But the other is the, in the much more challenging and should we do surgery in a patient who we won't be able to get all of her cancer out? That makes sense. Thank you. So um, your research also include, and these are very important topics, managing side effects of ovarian cancer, like lymphedema, neutropenia, and et cetera, right? So um, can you tell us about the most commonly cited side effects and um, your guidance in effectively managing them? Yeah, well, I don't know if I effectively manage them. I, I, I tell you, I do try. I do try. But number one is uh, with paclitaxel is hair loss. Um, uh, there is some opportunity there. Um, uh, these, these skull caps, cooling caps, uh, those are challenging. They're expensive and most insurances won't pay for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and out of pocket's quite expensive. They're moderately effective. Um, fatigue is probably the biggest and, uh, with, with utilization of chemotherapy agents, uh, in particular, the more chemotherapy you have, the more. So we use a lot of sleep-wake cycles. I really encourage my patients to have well-balanced lifestyles, particularly exercise, yoga and regular exercise or and or regular exercise has really uh, been shown to be effective. It's I'm not, you, you guys can't see me very well, but I'm not a yoga person. But I tell you, every trial that they study yoga and this tolerance of chemotherapy and cancer shows the benefit. So um, uh, it, it's something that in, in yoga and, and or regular exercise seems to really make a difference. Uh, and that's, that's tolerance in, in general. As we start to look at some of the other uh, more challenging uh, surgical complications like lymphedema, sexual dysfunction, becomes more challenging. We've limited the radicality uh, of some of our surgicals. What do I mean by radicality? How extensive the surgeries are. Um, there are times that taking out the lymph nodes are very important if they have cancer in them, uh, making sure they don't have cancer in them um, is very important and, and somewhat a risk of, of that we just have to take because if we miss cancer in the lymph nodes, we're going to miss a, a disease that should be treated more aggressively and potentially impact the chance that the cancer stays away or, or curative intent. Um, you know, as we look at these, we're going to continue to get better. We didn't have to face some of the problems in the past because women and all patients with recurrent or metastatic cancer didn't live very long. And the great news is our patients are living much longer and many of them normal lifespans. But with that comes longer uh, uh, risk of developing some of these symptoms. And so we continue to improve upon 
on what how we manage these. But for me, well-balanced lifestyle, including regular exercise, keeping your weight down to an earlier question. You know, does keeping the weight down going to keep the cancer away? I don't think I can say that, but I can say it's going to help uh, in energy as well as is uh, tolerating uh, therapies. You know, this is uh, the, going back to the weight issue that becomes a delicate balance because we have also heard our patients and overcomers say that, um, especially when they undergo chemotherapy, they're not they're not eating so well, or they in certain situations, not in every case, but then they tend to lose weight, and then that, that that's a red flag for the care team because they don't want that to happen. Yet we are also saying in the same breath that losing weight also will help um, the cancer to, to be at bay. So, you know, with all this conflicting information, it really gets challenging for the overcomers to filter one versus the other. So I'm just bringing this up because, you know, these are two very different um, thoughts, right? And so just just having a dietitian, possibly a clinical nutritionist or someone who could potentially guide the overcomers through this would be a great option. I think that's a great summary. And uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to be misinterpreted about it. I'm not convinced that keeping somebody's weight down will impact the outcome of ovarian cancer. I think by tolerance of chemotherapy and and what our our patients face and what our overcomers face mm -hmm. that having a well-balanced lifestyle but you're right i don't want to see extensive weight loss but patients are undergoing therapy and so i talk not about weight loss but a well-balanced lifestyle to include regular exercise and i don't focus as much on the weight except when it's to a detriment when, when it's a, to a detriment when that weight is dropping uh, because of of uh, not eating as well, nutritionally compromised. It's a great point, though. We really need to do a better job of of using multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned dietary, great idea. Physical therapy also. Our physical therapists are really working with our patients to make sure they're being safe, and if they start to develop neuropathy, making sure they're staying up with regular exercise, even some strength exercise. So that multidisciplinary approach with some of our other specialists like dietary and physical therapy are so important. Absolutely. And, and just from my personal experience, I met a, an ovarian cancer patient at a yoga studio and she was stretching 15 days after her surgery and she was in pain. And so not, even not being a doctor, I told her, I don't think it's a very good idea. You need to go back and talk to your care team and, you know, your physical therapist or someone at your um, institution to find out and figure out what is and what isn't good for you right after surgery. So, so important that the patients are guided, not just, you know, clinically, but all these lifestyle with these lifestyle issues as well. So thank you so much for bringing that up. So now in rates of recurrence in ovarian cancer, um, we know, like you said, majority of women do recur, but are there, um, are there differences in a particular subtype and their recurrence rates versus the others? And, um, and tell us how the tumor genetic status uh, could shed some light into the prognosis of ovarian cancer. Um, what should our overcomers know and ask their doctors yeah. about tumor profiling? 
comes down to much what I was saying earlier. It's so important that not only we have the gene, so what's made up of our body, but also what's in the tumor or somatic or tumor testing. Tumor testing has really become essential in our management of ovarian cancer and become even more important in the future. So, you know, giving the best chance of getting rid of the cancer so it doesn't come back, whatever term you want to use, no evidence of disease, no clinical evidence of disease or cure, uh, is really has a huge impact on what the molecular testing shows. BRCA mutated uh, tumors uh, have a, the highest uh, option of keeping the cancer away uh, in the first line setting. Okay, when I mean first line setting, right when chemotherapy is given. And we're about half, maybe not quite there, but about half of patients will keep that cancer away if they use PARP inhibitors or they're BRCA positive. When we extend that into those that are BRCA, not BRCA positive, but something called HRD positive, that number is probably close to that. Probably not quite there, and that number is sometimes hard to tease out because they often include the BRCA patients in there. But um, that a, 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 a large number of patients will be able to keep that cancer away uh, much longer, and, and I, hope, I hope never come back. The biggest challenge right now is something called the HRD test negative. Some of us sometimes call it HRP, but really HRD test negative are those patients. And those are some of our greatest options for our patients. Uh, options, what I mean is we need to get better. Challenges may be better than options, but the biggest challenge. And so a lot of the work we're doing in early development is to identify better uh, treatment options for those patients. And, and about 85% probably of those patients will ultimately have to battle their disease again. Doesn't mean 100%, but a very high percentage of patients. And so the molecular testing helps in prognos identify prognosis, but most importantly, why is that prognosis impacted? Because if we don't give those the, those treatments to those molecular subtypes I said, they look like the same as HRT test negative. So it's not just be, it's not because they respond better to chemotherapy, they respond better to PARP inhibitors. But you have to know that information to give them the PARP inhibitors. So that really the molecular testing is essential in making those decisions in the first line setting, which are where they're most effective. Hands down, most effective in the first line setting. In the future, understand the molecular profile to identify new medications like mervtuximab, like some other drugs which are being developed that target will also be important and that will evolve over time. Okay, thank you. So um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, progression-free survival and quality of life, right? So there's a lot of research on both and you know how just just wanted to know more about that and how do you identify patients that will benefit or not benefit from available therapies and achieve that critical balance between uh, progression-free survival and quality of life and what discussions are typically carried out with the overcomers in deciding and determining the best best course of action for each patient. Yeah, you know, it's it, you know, a lot of my answers have been convenient, effective, and well-tolerated therapies. And then we're trying to find more of those. So you have to balance those with regards to the treatment and the treatment paradigm. So sometimes if we're having somebody who has a lot of symptoms from their cancer, we're going to go to a medication that has higher 
efficacy or higher chance to shrink the disease, but may have a higher chance of toxicity. But we have to shrink that disease. Well, if somebody's just, say, when 20 is going up there, the CAT scan showing slight increased disease, but they otherwise feel pretty well, well, your tolerance of side effects much lower, right? Because they're otherwise feeling pretty good. So something convenient that keeps the disease in check is very important. The number one thing to minimize symptoms from ovarian cancer is don't let the disease grow. Easier said than done. So by keeping the disease, all the patient reported outcomes, all the abdominal symptoms and the early on trials, if you keep the disease away, patients feel better. There's always a little bit, there's always going to be some impact, but patients feel better if the cancer stays away. Unbelievably consistent across every trial which has been reported. So what you're saying, in other words, um, even though the quality of life may be temporarily disbalanced because of the higher, you know, efficacy drugs that we may be using for the patient who is not responding as much uh, to the levels that we have been using before, the toxicity may increase, but eventually the quality of life will be better because of the higher efficacy drugs that we have been using on the patient, even though temporarily they may not feel their 100%. Is that accurate? That's our hope. That's our hope that we're able to get. Now, you know, depending on where they are in their treatment, you know, if, they're, if they've had multiple therapies and their treatment options are limited, um, that can sometimes be more challenging. And that benefit on how they're feeling may not be as long as we would like because if the cancer starts to grow again. So it's really important. And, you, and I alluded to the earlier lines of therapy, keeping the cancer away longer is the most impactful on minimizing symptoms, okay? Later on, also the efficacy benefited the uh, balance, bat balance by the benefits. And so having that conversation, having that shared decision, and I sit down with my patients and say, hear what the options are, you know? Um, and that comes down to clinical trials too, you know? Uh, a clinical trial uh, that has, uh, that seems to be better tolerated than what's commercially available, mm -hmm. which is part of standard care, may be a really good option. Um, and often is the best option, con you know, for patients who have two or three prior lines of therapy. Okay. And so uh, just in, on a, a more uh, positive note, uh, what, what does the future of ovarian cancer look like to you in 10 years? Well, I'm starting to see stuff now that I did not think I would see in my lifetime. Yeah. I really, I, I, I used to say outside of a miracle, we won't see patients, you know, getting rid of recurrent cancer. I, I still say that, but boy, I see more miracles every day than I ever have. And, you know, I used to say we're not going to get rid of cancer once it's come back. I think the treatment paradigm is changing and we still may not completely get rid of it, but if we can keep it from growing with a well-tolerated therapy to yours, you, you, you use your term, a chronic disease, mm -hmm. I think over the next year, we're going to continue to find medications that move ovarian cancer 
much more into a chronic disease standpoint. What else are we going to do? We're going to identify patients with subsets of tumors who are most apt to benefit from those therapies earlier on. So I imagine not that too distant future where a patient will be identified with a folate receptor alpha uh, abnormality who's HRD positive who is, has a treatment that shows they should, would benefit from immune therapy and maybe an antivascular therapy. So th more therapies at the beginning of treatment, which will increase the chance of that curative intent that I started this uh, uh, coffee chat about. And I really believe that we'll see those. Both things happen. More therapies to keep the disease in control but what's the best way to keep the disease in control? Don't let it recur. So curative intent, better therapies to get rid of the cancer so it doesn't come back, so we don't have to worry about platinum-resistant disease. We don't have to worry about making that disease chronic. We're getting rid of it so it doesn't come back. And I'll add two things to that uh, while we are talking about the future and the hope is that, you know, uh, treatments with no side effects and uh, that are um, affordable by the companies. Well, and I think, again, that's that balance. Maybe more side effects earlier on to save you years and years of side effects later. Yes. But yes, more convenient, less side effects, better tolerated, and hopefully more affordable. Exactly. That that's a great note to to end this uh, end this particular question. So just when coming back to the present, though, uh, you you are very conversant with the current state of ovarian cancer, whether it be in the platinum sensitive or the uh, the uh, resistance phase. So if there was one thing, just one thing, or anything in the current state um, that you would change for our overcomers, what would you what would you do? Hmm. Uh, in the current state, not in a pipe dream. I just, you know, I, I think, you know, I just want to get rid of the cancer so it doesn't come back. In the current state, access to clinical trials. I think we need the, the amount of patients that go on clinical trial is dismal in the United States. And, and the diversity of those patients who go on to clinical trials across the country is also dismal. Many of our sites do a very good job, but making sure that every patient, no matter their insurance status, no matter their ethnicity, no matter what their race, is offered a clinical trial. And they, in turn, feel comfortable in trusting of their team to participate in those clinical trials. So the one thing is that everybody would be offered a clinical trial and have access to and hopefully participate on more than one clinical trial. So not only do I hope it benefits them, I hope it benefits generations of patients after them. That's a very important point. And I will add to that as I always do when we speak about clinical trials is that, you know, while speaking to our overcomer community, we have also realized that, you know, in certain cases or situations, the overcomers are actually interested to sign up on clinical trials, but you know, two things come in the way. One is their care team never talked to them about clinical trials and their availability and such. And the second thing is the clinical trials are very restrictive in terms of 
enrollment um, guidelines. And so whether it be location, whether it be just the general criteria or and etc., it is, and this is this is direct feedback we have re received from our community that sometimes, you know, it, it is also that bridge that needs to be, I think, you know, we need to bridge that gap that, you know, more of the care teams need to be talking to the overcomers about the availability of clinical trials, even if it's not open at their institution, but, you know, just um, a reference to what else is happening elsewhere in the nation and beyond. And also the fact that the eligibility criteria in certain cases, uh, and also the you know the number of enrollments in certain cases probably need to also increase. So, uh, you know, yeah, we are definitely working at it from a clinical trial design across the U.S. and you know, and the regulatory agencies. The regulatory agencies dictate a lot of the inclusion criteria, or dictate may be overstated. Regulatory agencies have great influence over the inclusion exclusion criteria. So we continue to educate the regulatory authorities. And there is a call, as you just said, to allow for some of the uh, clinical trial enrollment that impact uh, different populations of patients at a greater number than others uh, to allow for uh, greater enrollment but access, 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 more and more clinical trials are providing options for to overcome some of the barriers of clinical trial enrollment, like transportation, even staying in hotel rooms. So if your patients, if your overcomers are listening here today, as you they are, right, and they're not being offered clinical trials, go online, go online, and really Look at the larger centers in your area, and you can actually search uh, many of those sites to see what's available. And even clinicaltrials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov uh, will allow you to go in, search, and uh, sometimes even get into uh, uh, areas where you can identify a little bit hard, harder, but they've improved the search engine there to, to help out with that. But if you have a large center, which has a greater chance of having more clinical trials, that's within a uh, achievable distance. Make sure you go to those websites, call them, even ask for a second opinion. Yeah, and uh, to your point, we have actually made it simpler for our overcomers because we are housing clinical trials on our website, which is uh, ovarian only. So they don't have to filter through. Um, this is again, my message to all you overcomers. You don't have to filter through clinicaltrials.gov. Just go to the overcome website. You will see clinical trials for ovarian cancer only. You can search by Dr. O'Malley. You can search by other physicians and, um, and just, you know, all those results will uh, pop up for you. So we've made it simpler. Your journey is our service. So um, to go and check out the clinical trials on our website as well. So a great discussion, Dr. O'Malley. Uh, just in um, a conclusion, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience that's listening? Be an advocate for yourself. Uh, be an advocate for your friends and family. Um, search out cutting edge therapies, look for tomorrow's therapies today through clinical research. Make sure you're partnering with your practitioner for shared decision. Always nicer to have a shared decision as you're moving forward. And um, keep, keep, keep going forward, one foot in front of the other. Uh, and uh, thoughts, thoughts are with all of you. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that positive, beautiful message. It has been a great conversation. Thank you for your time. We learned so much from you today. And overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know that we touched on several topics when it comes to ovarian cancer and uh, spoke with the great expert that's our guest today. So please share this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these pearls of wisdom and the insights and candid um, feedback that Dr. O'Malley shared with us. So we'll be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.